Peter and Jude confirm this in the New Testament when they both mentioned it. Uh, the angels who sinned are in chains and gloomy darkness. And Peter is very specific. He says, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them down to hell, except the word in Greek is Tartarosis, which means Tartarus. That's not Hades, which is where the human dead presumably go. It's not Sheol in the Hebrew mind. Tartarus was a special place reserved for supernatural rebels. So it's a pretty good theory then that this Shemiyaza, because Peter and Jude are both clearly referring to the Genesis 6 incident, which is what's described in First Enoch. If Shemiyaza is in Tartarus with these sinful angels, you know, the Greeks in their theology, what we call mythology, believed that there were a group of old gods who were in the underworld, in Tartarus. That's Kronos and the Titans, overthrown by Zeus and the Olympians. Of course, that's the fake news version of the story. The Bible's got the actual history. Uh, but when you start reading, and this is what blew my mind, when you start reading about the uh, religions of the other people who lived around the Mediterranean back in uh, you know the time from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on down, you've got the, the Hittites and the Hurrians and the Canaanites, and the, uh, uh, the Amorites, the, the Akkadians, the Sumerians, going back 5,000 years, they all have the same pattern repeated over and over, that there was a sky god once who ruled, and he was overthrown by his son, variously named Enlil, or El, or Dagon, or Kumarbi, or Kronos, Kronos or Saturn, and I, I get the names mixed up in my own head, Baal, Haman, whatever, and then he in turn is overthrown by a, uh, a storm god, Marduk, Baal, Teshub, Tarhunta, Zeus, Jupiter, and so on. Uh, it's the same pattern repeated over same and over. Same pattern repeated over and over. My name's Nick. I'm the owner of Kevlar Joe's and I'm the roaster. I'm an Air Force Security Forces veteran, a dad to three wild boys, and a husband to my wife, Crystal, and a coffee enthusiast. From a family in a small town in Missouri, we started with the simple idea of crafting a perfectly bold cup of coffee. Inspired by wellness and countless pots of stale coffee while deployed, we wanted to craft a bold, clean, and smooth coffee. So we did. And we realized we wanted to share this coffee with our friends. Lord knows we could all use a good cup of coffee right about now. From the farm to your coffee cup, there's nothing like a good, well-crafted and bold cup of coffee. No matter what time of the day, it's there to pick you up, motivate you and relax you. We hope you enjoy our coffee. Be bold, be humble, be Kevlar. And you can find Kevlar Joe's Coffee Company anytime you want at www.kevlarjoe.com. And for listeners of the Dig Bible Podcast, use the code, all caps, DIG20, whenever you're checking out to get a 20% off discount. Enjoy. This is Timothy Albrino, and you're listening to the Dig Bible Podcast. We should read our Bible as men digging for buried treasure. The Bible is the world's most popular enigma.
its secrets lost to cultures beneath the sands of time. Or is it? It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. God wants you to seek, to read his word, to to look for that knowledge. He wants you to do that. Man, the people at Nicaea, they like chopped out 80 books of the Bible. We need to bring those back. There's more bad guys in this thing than a Bruce Willis movie. Oh, yeah. Let's back it up here. I, I love the intro to your show because it's exactly right. There's the nuggets of gold in his word. You guys always sign the show. You, you gotta dig it. Dig it. Show us your nuggets. God, our creator, lies outside of time and space and matter. I, know, I feel like God's be like, hello, McFly. You ain't got it so far, then. There are secret societies think that they are the descendants of the giant. I mean, isn't, isn't this exciting? I mean, you read it, it's like, wow. The Nephilology Roundtable. But these angels were taken to help immediately. Do not pass gold, do not collect $200. You're out of the game. Dirty hands means clean theology. Can you dig it? What's going on, all my local guys and gals and long-distance pals? We're back. We're back. Steven no longer shakes his head. I think he's accepted it. Yeah, I think it's... He he learns that it's just it's, it's just gonna happen. Yeah, it's like a constrictive pair of underwear. First, it's constrictive, but then it just becomes a part of you. That's, that's a weird. Terrible analogy. <laughs> that's that's, that's terrible weird. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. Uh, did you guys enjoy the kids at home today? Got got out for rain. And tomorrow. Yeah. So my kids oh, are homeschooled, so that didn't happen. Yeah, they're out. They're out tomorrow too. That's. We actually had to go out and cut trees down to try to get out of school in a foot of snow, and still didn't. Still had to go to school. Oh yeah. Now a cat pees in the winter time, and its roads are froze. And uh, baseball started. I'm excited. I love love baseball. See, I I never liked baseball, and like I told you, Jackson's just now playing. He had his first game the other day. Uh, he actually got on base his first at bat, and then he struck out the other two. But yeah, it's it's really hard. Even even though it's my son, it's hard to watch. I I loved. I used to love it in Florida. It. I, I played it till I saw how hard those guys could throw, and I was like, nope, backing up. I played all the way up through high school. But those guys, I miss living in Florida for spring training. Spring training was so much fun to be able to be part of that, be around it. It was a good time. I actually even worked at the Yankees ball field in in Tampa for a little while when I was a lot younger. But it was a good time. We used the All Star soccer player. Back in the day. It's you been played a, some college ball. Long, long time ago. I can't emphasize the long enough. Well, I can watch baseball a whole lot better than I can watch basketball. Now see, now that's my game. I love basketball. I'm not a basketball fan. 
nonstop action. Now, so- soccer and baseball, no offense, Stephen. Yeah. But all that See, running I can't watch, I can't watch and soccer hardly either. any scoring. Some offense taken. Sorry. but You'll get over it. <laughs> anyway, maybe we should get back on topic here. Back it up, I guess. Well, uh, we got another great guest for you guys. Before we get into that, I guess we'll go into prayer. Ben, go ahead this time. Dear Lord, thank you for the day. Please uh, give us some discernment. Please have this message or whatever we're going to talk about here reach who it needs to reach. Thank you for this crazy but awesome weather. Can't wait till spring. Do his name, amen. 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 We had a scheduling malfunction this week, and luckily we got a real good friend that helped us out in Again. a pinch. Yes. <laughs> Uh, we got with us uh, Derek. How you doing, Derek? I'm doing great. We're getting some rain here in the Ozarks too, but uh, kind of funny. Every time they issue a weather, like a, a flood watch, here we're about 1,300 feet above sea level. We're about 400 feet above Lake of the Ozarks and Table Rock Lake. Uh, Table Rock Lake just below us. So if uh, if we're gonna flood here, the whole Midwest is uh, is gonna be underwater. So we'll the get great wet. Deluge. We're not yeah, exactly. Same thing here. If it really ever got bad enough, we're we're at about the same height above sea level. If it if it floods here, then then the, the then God lied about the rainbow. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and we know that's not true. So that's right. Well, technically, if we don't flood completely, okay. <laughs> we really need flood to... the whole world. You know, yeah. no ocean. Ninety eight percent of it. Yeah. Why don't we kind of jump a little bit into uh, kind of, I know, Derek, you had said that you're kind of digging a little more in, and we've talked to you a little bit about this in the past, just a, a little bit, and I don't think it was on the show. I think it was in person, I do believe, but um, we're going to kind of delve into a little bit the, um, is is Lucifer really Satan? And, and the kind of the, you know, where that idea came from uh traditionally and um kind of kind of really delve into that and i'm really interested in this and i'll tell you and to be totally honest with you i uh you know as a as a i was a lutheran raised a lutheran for most of my life and and it was just common knowledge that's what it was lucifer was satan and i never questioned it and i think that that's that's a really int- I mean, it's just something that you never even thought to question until you start reading your own Bible and you start saying, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I was raised Southern Baptist practically. and But that's how you would. That's kind of how I was taught. Yeah. Yeah. Well, most even, you know, all the English translations, you know, the majority of them, you know, do say Lucifer. So even if you do read your Bible, yeah. it can be confusing. And, you know, I was raised in liturgical denominations too, United Church of Christ and then Lutheran. And it was just sort of taken as, it wasn't until about two years ago, really, that I started to change my mind on this. Well, maybe a little, two and a half years ago. A um, friend of ours back about 10 years ago wrote a book that I am now rereading, uh, David W. Lowe, who wrote the excellent book, Earthquake Resurrection, wrote a book called Deconstructing Lucifer about 10 years ago. And uh, I interviewed him and, you know, because we like David. He's a very careful uh, researcher, very good author. He's an accountant by training. And so, you know, everything has got to be very precise. You know, the, the ledgers have to balance. And so he comes out with this book, Deconstructing Lucifer, and he argues that Lucifer is not Satan. And I'm like, oh, David, bless your pointy little head. Everybody knows. <laughs> Everybody knows 
Lucifer is Satan. Come on, it's right there in the Bible. Well, about three years ago when I decided to try to follow up and try to put together the research that uh, Sharon and I have been collecting over the last seven years about Shemiyaza, who's this character who appears only in the book of First Enoch as the leader of that rebellious group of uh, supernatural beings, angels, if you want to use that term, who uh, come down to Mount Hermon, which is that big mountain right on the border between Israel and Syria and Lebanon, and decide to corrupt humanity by taking human wives and creating these hybrid giants and then teaching us forbidden knowledge. Shemiyaza is, according to Enoch, is uh, in the bottomless pit. He's in uh, basically in a deep, dark hole. And then Peter and Jude confirm this in the New Testament, where they both mention it. Uh, the angels who sinned are in chains and gloomy darkness. And Peter is very specific. He says, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them down to hell, except the word in Greek is Tartarosis, which means Tartarus. That's not Hades, which is where the human dead presumably go. It's not Sheol in the Hebrew mind. Tartarus was a special place reserved for supernatural rebels. So it's a pretty good theory then that this Shemiyaza, because Peter and Jude are both clearly referring to the Genesis 6 incident, which is what's described in First Enoch. If yep. Shemiyaza is in Tartarus with these sinful angels, you know, the Greeks in their theology, what we call mythology, believed that there were a group of old gods who were in the underworld in Tartarus. That's Kronos and the Titans overthrown by Zeus and the Olympians. Of course, that's the fake news version of the story. The Bible's got the actual history. Uh, but when you start reading, and this is what blew my mind, when you start reading about the uh, religions of the other people who lived around the Mediterranean back in uh, you know the time from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on down, you've got the, the Hittites and the Hurrians and the Canaanites and the, uh, uh, the Amorites, the, the Akkadians, the Sumerians, going back 5,000 years. They all have the same pattern repeated over and over that there was a sky god once who ruled and he was overthrown by his son variously named Enlil or El or Dagon or Kumarbi or Kronos or well I'm getting ahead of, well, yeah, Kronos or Saturn and I, I get the names mixed up in my own head Baal Haman whatever and then he in turn is overthrown by a, uh, a storm god Marduk Baal Teshub Tarhunta Zeus Jupiter, and so on. Uh, it's the same pattern repeated over and over. And the more you read the research from these scholars who specialize in reading these ancient texts and translating them, it's essentially just telling the same story that have been passed on from one culture to another and down the centuries. So we've got that story where this old entity, Shemiyaza, uh, logically would be the king of the Titans, the leader of this group that was sent down to Tartarus, the netherworld, the bottomless pit, the abyss, the guy that uh, the Greeks called Kronos and the Romans called Saturn. So I started doing some more reading into this, this entity and, and looking for evidence that he's in the Bible. I mean, he seems kind of like a big deal. If he led this rebellion in Genesis 6 that created these hybrid creatures called the Nephilim, later called the Rephaim, and their spirits were believed by the Jews of Jesus' day and the early church to be the demons, the spirits of the giants destroyed in the flood, were not allowed into the regular places in the afterlife reserved for the human dead. They weren't allowed into the, the realms of heaven with God and his loyal angels. They were condemned, according to First Enoch, to wander the earth, tormenting humanity. 
until the judgment. That was the belief of the early church. It's like, that's kind of a big deal. So why isn't this entity mentioned in the Bible? Well, as I said, you know, he went by many different names. He is in the Bible if we care to look. Enlil, El, Asher, the chief god of the Assyrians. Molech, mentioned more than a couple times in the Old Testament, the god who demanded child sacrifice. He's in there. But as I was doing this research, I came across the references to Asher in Isaiah chapter 14. Now, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, those are the two parallel chapters that we assume, or we've been taught, rather, refer to the fall of Satan, Satan being kicked out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. So I started looking very carefully into Isaiah 14. That's the very famous chapter that uh, in the King James says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Um, you go back to uh, verse 4, and there's a reference to the king of Babylon. Uh, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, how the oppressor has ceased, how the insolent fury ceased. Now remember now, the king of Babylon in Hebrew is Melech Bab-el. Bab-el is the same word as for the Tower of Babel. The gate Just of the gods. Context assumed, right, gate of the gods. That's what it means in Assyrian. Bab Eli, the Akkadian Bab Elu, gate of the gods, or the god gate. So are we talking about the king of Babylon here or the king of the god gate? Okay. And I ask this question because as we go further down, there's a reference to the Assyrian, but I'll explain why I don't believe this refers to the Assyrian. Continuing in Isaiah 14, we see that this, this uh, entity, whoever's being described here, this king of Babel, is uh, told that he's going to be greeted by the Rephaim in Sheol. That's the underworld. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you. When you come, it rouses the Rephaim. The, the English word usually translated shades, but it's Rephaim in Hebrew. The Rephaim to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth, They're the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. This is a reference to the spirits of the Nephilim. All who were kings of the nations, all of them will answer and say to you, you have become as weak as we, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You get to verse 12 in uh, the ESV. It's, O Daystar, son of dawn, O Lucifer, son of the in the King James. And uh, I'll explain how we get to Lucifer here in, uh, in just a bit. Um, this is a, a condemnation of this, this entity who wanted to essentially elevate himself above God. Uh, Isaiah 14, 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. Uh, actually, in the Hebrew, it's above the stars of El. So is it referring to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, or is it referring to El, the creator God of the Canaanites? In other words, if it's referring to the entity that I think it is, Isaiah 14, 13 might be saying that this entity wants to elevate himself above his minions. The stars referring to the angels of the heavenly realm. Either way. This guy's got an ego problem. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly, the Har Moed, which, by the way, is the Hebrew phrase from which John got the Greek transliteration Armageddon. Okay? The Mount of Assembly. Everyone in the ancient world knew that's where the gods met and decided the fates of the nations. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High, but you are brought down to shale to the far reaches of the pit. Okay. Um, then we get down to verses 24 through 25. Now, let me, let me read verse 22. I will rise up against them, declares Yahweh of hosts. It's a term used 
of God in the Old Testament uh, dozens of times, literally. It means Yahweh of armies. God is a military commander. And we'll cut off from Babylon. I will cut off from Bab-El, from Bab-Elu, from the God Gate, name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares Yahweh. Why is that important? Because in the ancient world, it was known that if your descendants forgot your name, if they didn't perform a monthly ritual called the Kispum, an Amorite, if on the 30th day of the month, the night of no moon, they didn't call your name and summon you through a necromancy ritual to a, to a family meal where your spirits were fed and given a drink offering, you would cease to exist. There's a reference to that in uh, 2 Samuel 18, 18, where you see that Absalom, the son of David, erected a pillar for himself in the Valley of the Kings, for he had no son to keep his name in remembrance. That's why if your descendants didn't summon you, didn't call your name once a month to give you food and drink, you ceased to exist. You were forgotten and you faded away to nothing. Even Abraham I think that's what talked God. about that, didn't he? Because he said, uh, what was it, his... Uh servant the cupbearer he who bear my cup eleazar yeah right uh and actually it's a uh, a little play on language or perhaps a scribe who didn't understand what the phrase meant a scholar by the name of uh, nicholas wyatt pointed this out in the story eleazar of damascus um dr wyatt believes that the original hebrew was eleazar ben meshek meaning son of the cup because it was the responsibility of the oldest son in the family to summon the family to this meal once a month and then call out the names of the ancestors in this ritual and then pour out the drink offering. He was the pourer of water or the son of the cup. But later you get into a, uh, uh, say, the post-Babylonian exile, um, which would be, what, about 1,300 years later? scholar might not have known what that meant. He said, ah, this, mu this must be a reference to Damascus, Ha-Damashek, instead of Ben-Meshek. Ha-Damashek, oh, Eleazar of Damascus. Hmm. And so that's why we get that. But yeah, I think that's why Abraham and Sarah were concerned. I mean, they were in their 90s, and they didn't have a son to keep their name in remembrance. That was a really big deal in the ancient world. There, were Amor there are texts found among the Amorites where... Uh, contracts were drawn up. People who didn't have an heir to perform this ritual would hire contractors, basically, to do it after they died. That's so crazy. it's, uh, it, yeah, I know it's crazy to us, but to them, that was part of their worldview. Well, even well, the Hispanics, was, the Day of the Dead, they offer day food of and dead. drinks. And that's, the, and that's the part, and we you talk about this a lot, uh, you know, when we go back and think about it, the way that Michael Heiser always taught us about this as well is, is we have to look at it through the eyes of the people at that time. You right, know, right. what, when we, when we try to put things into our modern day perspective, everything sounds crazy. A lot of the rituals, a lot of the ceremonies, a lot of the uh, belief systems of so many of those countries obviously wouldn't make sense to us, but we have to look at it through their eyes. Absolutely. That's the only way it makes sense. Cause it was written for the people in that day. So when we uh, look at these things, I just did an interview with a uh, uh, the dean of biblical studies at Trinity Southwest University, who argues that the ages of the patriarchs are not to be meant, not meant to be taken literally. Like uh, it says, Abraham lived to be 175. It doesn't mean he actually lived to be 175. Those numbers were given to uh, like uh, Abraham and Moses, Joseph, who lived to the age of 110. 
uh, as a way of honoring them. They didn't look at history and numbers the way we do in the 21st century. Oh, like wow. The number, 70, the number 70 means all of them, the complete set. So did uh, King uh, Ahab actually have 70 sons? Not Probably not, but what it means is when his 70 sons were killed, it means that they all died, every last one of them. Um, that's how they viewed things back in the day. And when we look at this and say, well, it's got to be 175 years or you're dissing the Bible. No. And Dr. Olson uh, makes that clear in this presentation, but it's just another example of how we need to look at how they viewed the world and try to see it through their eyes. So um, when they're talking about things that don't make sense to us, like, for example, in Isaiah 14, 19, there's a, there was a reference to the loathed branch. Um, this is referring to this entity, Lucifer, if you will, cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch. You know, even considering there's like 2,700 years between us and Isaiah, what, what does that even mean? Uh, scholar pointed out that the word translated branch in Hebrew in, is netzer, but there's a homonym or a word in Egyptian that sounds almost identical to netzer. That means um, divinized corpse. Like a, and it's usually applied to Osiris, who is the god of the dead in Egypt. So when you see it in the context of Isaiah 14, that this guy, this, this entity who wanted to elevate himself above God in the heavens, above the Most High, is now being cast down to shale to the farthest reaches of the pit, where uh, he's cast out away from his grave, um, like a dead body trampled underfoot. Suddenly, this this makes sense. Not like a loathed branch. It's like a loathed, divinized corpse. And again, remember that the Rephaim were believed to be the spirits of the mighty kings who lived long, long ago, like the heroes of the Greeks. So in context, that makes sense. But we lost that because we don't understand the cult of the dead in the ancient world. Don't consider the possibility that the uh, that the Hebrews might have used some Egyptian or Aramaic loan words. And so we try to find an era, a Hebrew explanation for it, and that's how we get loathed branch in Isaiah 14, 19, instead of loathed God of the dead, which is what this entity turned out to be. Um, the, the bottom line here is I, I go into this in real detail in the book, The Second Coming of Saturn, and it, in, in this kind of format, it, it can get really dry, really fast. The bottom line is that Isaiah 14 in this Lucifer passage, and then the um, corresponding passage in Ezekiel 28, which is um, the uh, the guardian cherub who covers, who is uh, kicked out of uh, kicked off Eden, the mountain of God. Those are the two chapters that uh, pastors will point to, Bible teachers will point to, and say, "See, this is where Satan was kicked out of heaven," and this is this is where we get this idea that Lucifer is the um, uh, is the name for Satan. But a couple problems with this. First of all, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 do not mention the events of Genesis chapter 3, which is the temptation in the garden. They don't mention it. So it's not a given that the rebel in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 was the same entity who tempted Adam and Eve to take and eat the forbidden fruit, the nakash in the garden. And that actually helps explain one of the uh, questions I've always had about Ezekiel 28, verses, verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. Now, we know what a cherub looks like thanks to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10. These are these winged beings that have four faces, human, ox, lion, and eagle. 
but the Nakash is described as serpentine. And in fact, we see a couple places like Numbers 21 and uh, Isaiah 14 and Isaiah 30, where you get the references to the Nakash and the Seraphim used interchangeably. Like the flying fiery serpents, the uh, fiery serpents that were biting the people in uh, the desert because they had sinned against God. Um, if you get the Nakash and the Seraphim, are interchangeable and we know what the seraphim look like because of Isaiah chapter 6 his throne room vision they got the six wings and the hoops for feet very weird and if, if they're possibly serpentine in appearance because they're used interchangeably with Nakash which is usually translated serpent in the Bible how can the anointed guardian cherub be the same entity as the Nakash the serpent in the garden well if they're not the same entity problem solved in fact, there's a hint of this in the Septuagint translation of Ezekiel chapter 28. That's the version of the Bible that was translated from Hebrew into Greek about 200 years before Jesus was born. So this gives us an idea into what Jewish religious scholars and how they interpreted their Old Testament in the centuries before Jesus and, uh, and the apostles walked the earth. In the Septuagint, now this is translated into English, obviously, from the Greek from the older Hebrew text. From the day you were created, I placed you with the cherub, with the cherub in the holy mountain of God. In the holy mountain of God. Whether you're pre-trib or pre-wrath, it's important to dispose of the pretense that expensive insurance is something that you're stuck with. Most people don't shop around for better insurance rates until years after they get their policies. And with the price of a loaf of bread slowly approaching a day's wages, it's important to save where you can. That's why the Better Insurance Agency is here to help with options for home, auto, life, and small business insurance. Visit us online at www.thebetterquote.com. Or call us at 540-200-8646 today to see about switching to a better insurance company. Currently available only in Virginia and Tennessee. Please note that if you're listening to this commercial after the rapture has taken place, the Better Insurance Agency is probably closed. Two separate entities here. The rebel was not the guardian cherub, the anointed cherub who covered but he was there with the cherub. And then in verse 16, because of the abundance of your merchandise, you filled the treasuries with lawlessness and you sinned and were wounded from the mountain of God. And the cherub led you out of the middle of the fiery stones. In other words, the cherub tossed you out, the guardian cherub who covered. So I think that's what we're looking at here. It's not the Nakash necessarily. And uh, again, you've got the possibility here, thanks to the Septuagint, that you're dealing with two separate entities, that the cherub and the, uh, the rebel are not even the same entity at all.
So this is um, opening the possibility then that perhaps the rebellion in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 are something other than what happened in Genesis chapter 3. And because of Peter and Jude, who both point out that angels who sinned were in the bottomless pit, and it's clear from their writing, 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude beginning at verse 6, the sin was sexual, which can only be Genesis chapter 6. There were other divine beings who rebelled against God. It's not just Satan. He's not the only one who got kicked out of the divine assembly. And when you look at, so, so the next question is, how did the Jews generally view Satan? Do they connect Satan with the netherworld? Do they connect Satan as this, this great rebel of God? In the Old Testament, he's barely even mentioned. And when he is mentioned, it's not even um, a proper name. It's Ha-Satan, the Satan. It's a job title, the adversary. Um, you see him in First Chronicles 21, uh, Job chapters 1 and 2, and Zechariah 3, verses 1 and 2. Those are the only places in the Old Testament where Satan is even mentioned. In the Jewish mind, he was not this great enemy. He was sort of like a prosecuting attorney who was doing a job for God, pointing out the flaws in God's creation, especially his human, the human part of his creation. You think Job is all that great? Well, hey, let me let me test him a little bit, and we'll see what uh, we'll we'll see how well he does. Um, but nowhere in the Old Testament, in those few references to the Satan, do you see any connection between Satan and the netherworld? Unlike Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, where clearly that rebel was tossed out and is now down there with the Rephaim, in the, not just in shale, but in the far reaches of the pit, which I think may be a uh, uh, kind of a euphemism, a, uh, a, a Hebrew way of saying the bottomless pit or Tartarus. Um, he's not connected to Rephaim in any way, uh, unlike the rebel in Isaiah 14. And according to Job and Zechariah, he still had access to the throne room of God. That's when something that's always Job, confused me, honestly. Right. I was like, so was he just demoted and he was summons when God wanted him? Or how did that work? That's something I always wandered in my head. Yeah. Um, so where do we get the idea that Satan is the Lord of hell? Because the Jews certainly didn't have that idea. And coming back to uh, the book Deconstructing Lucifer by our friend David W. Lowe, uh, he does a really good job of documenting that the early church didn't see Satan as this entity either, you know, sitting in the netherworld with flames all around with a pitchfork and horns and a tail. That was not the Satan. And by the way, I only learned this a few months ago, thanks to our friend Doug Van Dorn. Uh, <laughs> even in the Greek New Testament, Satan is not a proper name either. It is ho Satanus. It's the Satan all the way through the Bible. So and the you made idea this that connection Satan with... is a proper name. And you've, you're the one that made this connection with uh, uh, Shimzaza because when I was reading David uh, Lowe's book, one of the things that I just was really having trouble getting was he keeps saying that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 was not supernatural at all. That's what I was picking up from it. He was saying, no, they're addressing right. a king. And then he right. even went as far as saying that when they're addressing the uh, – the guardian cherub and you were in eden perfection that it was adam yeah no i i disagree with david there i i think he did a really good job of showing how satan became the satan that we know but i think when we're looking at isaiah 14 and ezekiel 28 we've got to look at another character i do think 
that those were addressed to the king of Babylon, perhaps, although I raised the speculation in my book that it's raised, that it's actually directed at the king of the God gate, who I think was the king over those in the bottomless pit, Abaddon Apollyon, who's just another identity worn by Saturn, Kronos, Enlil, Molech, etc., Shemiyaza. I think same entity, different names. Could it be, could it be just randomly, but could it be the, uh, like a King of Tyre situation where maybe it's referring to two separate entities? You know what we're talking about? Obviously one part of it is talking about the King of Tyre and the other part is talking about someone supernatural at the same time. Yeah. And I think that was the uh, condition. That was the uh, opinion of our friend, the late Dr. Michael Heiser that, uh, yes, he was directing it at these human entities. I always question Isaiah directing it at the king of Babylon, because during Isaiah's day, the Assyrians were still the dominant political power. Babylon was like a, a vassal state. So why would Isaiah be directing this at the king of Babylon? The king of Babylon was uh, basically a flunky who was handpicked by the king of Assyria. Now, again, there would be a future day about 100 years after Isaiah where um, – the Babylonians would become the dominant power in the ancient Near East. But at the time Isaiah wrote, it was not, not, uh, it was the Assyrians who were the major power. And, and again, when you get that reference to the Assyrian in Isaiah 14, you've got this problem with the definite article, the, it's not there. In Hebrew, Asher refers to the chief God of the Assyrians, who was just Enlil or El or Molech Shemiyaza by a different name could also refer to the capital city of the Assyrians, and it also referred to Assyria, the country. So when you see references in the Old Testament to the Assyrian, which is uh, sometimes taken as a prophecy of the Antichrist in uh, the book of Micah, you know, uh, the Assyrian, well, Isaiah 14 is a similar prophecy where he, you know, prophesies the uh, condemnation or the destruction of the Assyrian. I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot. But again, the definite article, ha, or the is not in the Hebrew. I will break Ashur in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot. So does that mean the Assyrians? Well, that wasn't quite fulfilled. The Babylonians wiped out the Assyrians in northern Mesopotamia. The final battle was near the city of Haran. Um, I think it's, again, this is speculation. I'm not going to die on this theological hill, but I think it's a reference to this entity, Ashur, Enlil, Molech, Saturn, Kronos, Baalhamon, Shemiyaza, Apollyon, Abaddon. I think that's who's in view in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Um, but again, the question is, how do we get from there? This, this idea that um, uh, you know, nobody in the Jewish world ever has seen Satan in those chapters. And the early church didn't see Satan in Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28. How did this happen? Well, again, this is where David W. Lowe did some really great research. He pointed out that um, it wasn't until like uh, the second century or where Ignatius of Antioch, early second century, like around the year 108 AD, that's when Ignatius died. So in that first decade of the second century, less than 20 years after John wrote the book of Revelation, um, Ignatius connected Satan to Luke 10 verse 18, which is where Jesus says that he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Um, and then, thus, this was the connection between Satan and Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 that was picked up on by Justin Martyr, who was in the middle of the 2nd century AD. He was the first early church father to connect Isaiah 14, 12 
to Satan falling from heaven. You know, oh, Lucifer, how art thou fallen from heaven? Um, Tertullian in the uh, second century, Irenaeus in the second century, Tertullian actually early third century. Um, Origen. Origen said something about that in that, uh, was it De Principis uh, that he wrote? Referred to him in that way uh, as well? Early third century. And he was the first one. He is actually where we get the... uh, where the name Lucifer comes about. Okay. Cause in the Hebrew, and by the way, this is another, I should have mentioned this to, to keep this uh, together, but uh, getting, getting late in the day and the blood share is not where it ought to be. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the word translated Lucifer or words translated Lucifer, son of the morning in the King James in the Hebrew is actually Helel ben Shakar, which means light bringer, son of dawn. And Origen translated Helel with the Greek word Heosphoros. Uh, the Greek word Heosphoros, and then into Latin, Lux meaning light and Pharos meaning to carry, so light bringer. And uh, then later, when uh, Jerome translated the Vulgate, he took what Origen had written in the third century, about 100 years earlier, and um, 200 years earlier, and transferred that in, and com- took that compound word looks pharos light bringer and made it a proper name lucifer so people who are convinced that lucifer is the name of the devil are unaware that this is a translation of a translation of the original hebrew Halel ben shakar yeah i um, think david said he chose to do a transliteration instead of a translation <laughs> correct yes um and Here's the thing. A scholar by the name of William Gallagher back in the, uh, the early 90s, almost 30 years ago now, and uh, Doug Hamp put me onto this, wrote a paper in which he showed that Helel is actually a West Semitic, like Canaanite or Hebrew transliteration of the Akkadian name Elil, which is the Akkadian form of Enlil. So this would suggest that... Uh, Isaiah 14 is actually directed at this entity that the Hebrews also referred to as Molech, a god known among the Greeks and Romans and the Phoenicians for for demanding child sacrifice. That uh, he was the rebel in view, and it kind of makes sense. Now, again, it's kind of speculative because this is not explicit anywhere in the Bible, but think about this. This entity, if I'm correct in my theory that this is Shemiyaza, the leader of the rebellion, in Genesis chapter 6, the one who led the group of 200 on the summit of Mount Hermon to say, let us take wives and father children. And they produce these, these monstrous offspring. Um, when God decided to send a flood to put a stop to that and chained these entities up in the netherworld, in the bottomless pit, they were helpless for five months while their children were being destroyed in the flood of Noah. And we know it was five months exactly because in Genesis 7 and Genesis 8, we're told that the ark was on the water for 150 days. And this is more evidence, I think, that my theory is correct, that this entity is also the destroyer, Abaddon or Apollyon, who comes out of the abyss, the bottomless pit, in Revelation 9. Because in Revelation 9, these entities, led by Abaddon and Apollyon, are given five months exactly to torment those without the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, why, that I mean, again, talking about the importance of numbers in the ancient world 150 is not one of those common numbers 
you know, seven, three, seven, 10, 40, 70. Those are all very important numbers. Hundred important, but 150, five months. No, it's the only two places in the Bible where you see that, uh, that number. It's book ending. These same entities who watched their children die for five months, get out at the end to torment humanity for five months. And in between time, they have influenced humanities through their intermediaries, these demons that they fathered, to take our own children and offer them up as sacrifices. Number one cause of death on planet Earth for the last four years running, at least the last four years where I could check the numbers, is abortion. Yeah. And uh, Tim Stedman, Stedman, he came on the show and was talking about there's also a correlation uh, how, you know, the people at that time, they were, you know, farmers and sheep herders and stuff like that. That That is the uh, gestation period of a small farm animal. So there's another, you know, mm-hmm. baby connection. The baby connection. The baby connection. <laughs> so I, I think the theory fits together. And, and I think also you've got to consider this. These entities led by this this creature the destroyer shemiyaza abaddon apollyon they're in chains in gloomy darkness according to peter and jude they've been locked up in the bottomless pit for millennia while satan is still roaming the earth seeking whom he may devour according to peter um does this suggest that god considered shemiyaza abaddon apollyon more dangerous than satan could have just stopped what they were doing but not only did he stop what they were doing according to peter and jude he put them in chains and locked them up in the bottomless pit whereas satan was still allowed to continue doing what he was doing or the satan is there more than one satan i think that's the interesting i think that's the really interesting thing derek when we talk about that being more of a a title so you know, we want to, you know, the, the modern church wants to always, and, and I mean, and this is how I was raised and, you know, evil is evil to some degree, but when you talk about this and you look at <clears throat> the fact that that is not a proper name, it just means the adversary or the tempter or the accuser. I mean, we have all these different, the different, uh, uh, I guess, titles that go along with that. And we see that that's given throughout time. You know, everybody wants to think that, uh, you know, that was Satan in the garden, you know, Lucifer in the garden. I mean, there's so many different things where if this all fits together, that right there already puts a a kind of a, I guess, kind of a hole in that whole theory of Lucifer being Satan. It just doesn't, it doesn't add up. Yeah, I I agree. Um, And, and then we can get into all kinds of speculation as to what happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, again, it's clear that this entity has a certain role that he performs, where he accuses or tempts Job. He certainly tempts David into uh, conducting the census. He's uh, accusing 
the high priest uh, Joshua in the time of uh, time of uh, Zechariah. But by the time you get to the New Testament, he's going way beyond that, tempting Jesus. And according to Jesus in Matthew 12, where he is uh, confronted by the uh, the religious leaders of the day who say he's accused him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, which Baal the prince. Jesus responds and says, if Satan casts out demons by his own power, how will his kingdom stand? It's like, wait a minute, suddenly he's got a kingdom? When did that happen? How did this happen? Revelation 12. Revelation 12. Happened at the time of Jesus' birth. Now the question is, is that the same, the Satan, the same adversary, was in the garden? Because among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I... I get it this is not these are not scriptures but it does give us an idea as to what how jews understood their script their scriptures um among the dead sea scrolls at qumran there's a prayer that asks god to protect them from the satans plural think this is another way i like to think about it is if you look at the history of of um Egypt, for example, how many times did a God rise up and then another God came and struck him down and became the, the head of the gods, you know, and then it, it follows down throughout a lot of those Assyrian, uh, Akkadian histories. It's the same thing where you see another right. God rise up and he's the head of that. And I kind of always, and I mean, I, I shouldn't say always, cause this is more obviously recently, but I start to think that maybe that is that direct correlation to Satan is who is at the head of the, the realm at that time, the dark realm. Does that make sense? Or am I way off the rails? No, absolutely. And Sharon, it works this into her uh, series of, of fiction, the, the Red Wing saga, where she's got competition between members of the fallen realm. And I'm working on a, a follow-up to my novel, the God conspiracy, where I'm bringing more of this in the God conspiracy. I started back in 2003. I didn't know anything. And uh, so I had to, kind of wait, let it percolate for a while, rewrote it, re-edited it, put it out again um, a couple of years ago when suddenly the the whole idea of a, a, a an enforced vaccine became a lot more relevant than it had before I started writing the book. But if we look at politics in the human realm, okay, look at the 2020 election. Democrats were agreed that they didn't want Donald Trump to get back in the White House, but then they were fighting with each other like cats and dogs to be the one to take his place. Why wasn't what doesn't the, why do we assume the same thing isn't happening in the fallen realm? Like it's Satan and all of his little minions. It's like no, uh, look at Revelation. You got the the mystery Babylon, the the, the whore riding the whore of Babylon riding the beast, the Antichrist. Like she thinks she's controlling where it's going. I, and uh, Sharon makes a really good case that uh, this is Inanna or Ishtar or Astarte, the queen of heaven. She's called in the Bible. Um, she thinks she's going to wind up running the show in the end times. And then these 10 kings, who we don't believe are human kings, the, the kings who are aligned with the beast, we believe are supernatural entities. Okay, these are other fallen Elohim who think that somehow they're going to manage to push Yahweh off his throne, and then they'll figure out who gets to take his place. And uh, in my follow-up novel, I'm uh, working uh, with, with that as more of a... Um, an aspect of the plot than I did with the God conspiracy. I mean, there was a supernatural aspect there, but it wasn't a whole lot. Just the, the competition between these entities was sort of hinted at. It's going to be more overt in this, uh, this follow-up novel. So I, Cause I think it's really interesting when you see uh, how this, th this happens. I mean, there's even a hint of it in some of the, um, 
the Mesopotamian texts. Uh, a scholar wrote a paper a couple of years ago, and I'm going to forget his name, sadly, uh, but it's a history of Enlil. And again, Enlil, one of the names or identities worn by this character, who I believe is Shemiyaza in ancient times and the destroyer in the future. Um, Enlil was introduced into Sumer when the Akkadians moved in under Sargon the Great in the 24th century BC. Before the arrival of the Akkadians, the entity, the deity who was believed to convey kingship onto human rulers was Inanna or Ishtar, the goddess of sex and war. After the Akkadians came in and brought the worship of Enlil and the Amorites came with El, again, same entity, different names, suddenly it was Enlil who was conveying kingship. I think there's competition between these entities, kind of reflected in politics in the human realm. But I think it's behind the scenes. I think you're seeing these um, supernatural beings that are competing for power as well in the, in the spirit realm. And I think as we get closer to the end, that competition is going to ramp up and become more overt um, as they realize their time is growing short. And, and again, I think there's more evidence that this, this creature that I'm talking about, Saturn, Kronos, Balaamon, Enlil, El, Molech, Asher, etc., is uh, Dagon, is all through the Bible. If, if he's there if we know what we're looking for. First of all, you have to look at context whenever you see the word El, usually translated God in the Old Testament, but it doesn't always necessarily refer to Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Um, secondly, there's uh, th this is one that blew my mind. In Zechariah chapter 4, there's a real famous verse that many of us have heard, but we don't read it all the way through and understand the context. In Mesopotamia, this chief god or creator god, Enlil, Asher, Dagon, was called the Great Mountain. That was his nickname or his epithet. In fact, his temple in the city of Nippur was called the Ikur, which means house of the mountain or the mountain house. And that's where all of the gods met once a year to decree the fates of the nations. What's really fascinating about Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel chapter one is not that he's seeing wheels within wheels that Giorgio Tsoukalos assures us is a UFO. No, it's, and Ezekiel emphasizes this point to make sure we get it. He says it's over the Kivar Canal, C-H-E-B-A-R, the Kivar Canal. Eight times in the book of Ezekiel, he makes reference to the vision that I had at the first over the Kivar Canal or at the Kivar Canal. That's important because the Kivar Canal branched off the Euphrates and ran right through the city of Nippur, which means that his vision of the throne room of God with the throne guardians, the caravine, and these ophanim, the wheels within wheels with eyes all around, and the glory of God, it manifested directly over the house of the mountain, the place that was believed to be the most important spiritual location in all of Mesopotamia, where the gods would meet once a year to decree the fates of the land. Okay, so everybody in Mesopotamia knew who the great mountain was. Now look at Zechariah chapter 4, beginning at verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We've all heard that verse. But the next line, verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. Bible teachers will usually say, well, this means, you know, Zerubbabel, he was 
he was in charge of rebuilding the temple. He had a really hard job, and that was his mountain that he had to overcome. He had to level out <laughs> that mountain, the problem of rebuilding the temple. No, the Israelites had just come back from 70 years in Mesopotamia. They knew who the great mountain was. God was mocking the creator God, the father of the gods of the Mesopotamians, the Akkadians and the Babylonians, who had enslaved the Israelites for 70 years. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you're going to become a plain. We see another reference to this, I think, in Jeremiah 51, verse 25. This is in the context of condemning Babylon. And remember, in Babylon, their father God, the creator, was Enlil, the great mountain. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. Without understanding the, the religious context of Mesopotamia and who the great mountain was, this, okay, oh, it's, it's, it's a metaphor. It's picturesque language. Uh-uh. Now, was it Mount Hermon uh, where it was, I think, and I could be wrong, but El and his 70 sons ruled the nations mm -hmm. also? Right. Yeah, the Canaanite uh, religious texts found at the uh, uh, the city-state of Ugarit, which is an Amorite kingdom that was destroyed around the time of the Judges, about 1200 B.C. It was believed that that was the abode of El, which is uh, described as being at the source of the two deeps or the double deep, which is uh, interesting when you remember that uh, psalm, Deep Calls the Deep, and makes reference to uh, you know the the region of the Upper Jordan near Mount Hermon. Anyway, um, yeah, he was believed to be uh, that that was his his mount of assembly, his heart Moed, where uh, El and Asherah and their seventy sons, and again the seventy meet the number representing all of the gods of the nations. Um, one scholar refers to uh, Mount Hermon as the the Semitic Olympus, it's the equivalent of Mount Olympus. For the Semites, and um, when you read the Ugaritic texts, man, it is so clear that that region is just full, full of meaning. Um, Sharon and I are leaving for Israel in less than two weeks, and we're going to be there five days before the tour gets there, so we can shoot some video and some at some of those megalithic sites in the Golan, because the Golan Heights is the ancient kingdom of Bashan. So, um, yeah, we're looking forward to getting to. Uh, Gilgal, Rephaim, that serpent mound of Bashan. Mount Hermon is like 25 miles north of there. Um, yeah, uh, th those references in scripture have a, a supernatural meaning. It's just we've lost the context. And so, uh, you know, again, even in, in Jewish texts outside of the Bible, like the book of First Enoch, when Enoch was taken down to the netherworld to see the angels who'd been punished for diso uh, disobedience, they're described as burning mountains. In Revelation 8, you've got the uh, great mountain burning with fire thrown into the sea. I don't think those are actual geological features or meteorites. I think we're talking about supernatural entities here. And uh, that's who's in view when you're looking at Isaiah 14. Lucifer is not Satan. Lucifer is Saturn. Lucifer is El. Lucifer is Enlil. Lucifer is Shemiyaza, the leader of the rebellion in Genesis 6. 
And there's your bike drop moment right there. When we really look at everything and you just, you, you, you kind of throw it down there. I, you know, when I was looking at this, I thought it was pretty interesting as we went along and, and I looked at the, not only did I look at some of the, I mean, you take it into such depth beyond anything that, that, um, you're not any rational based. person would want to know. Well, no, I you don't. That's no, why we love you. That no, that's exactly why we love you because you take it and and your your knowledge base and and the 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 drive you have to research this stuff, it makes it easier for us to to look into it and kind of connect the dots for us. But I like looking also at the the kind of the historical side of things when you were talking about you know origin and um, and then Jerome um, when. Jerome, hold on, I got it written down over here somewhere. Uh, Jerome, you know, he he uh, when he finished the Vulgate, I think it was finished by like uh, I think it said four hundred five A.D. Um, and he trans he he translated that Halel as as Lucifer, like you said. But when we get further along and we get into the the Middle Ages, or I, even before that, but you get into the Middle Ages, it almost Lucifer had become kind of synonymous with Satan. I mean, it had gotten to that point. But when you look at, you get to like John Calvin, which I'm I'm definitely not a Calvinist. Don't get me wrong, but John Calvin did not he agree. Knew he wouldn't be. <laughs> but John Calvin did not agree with that viewpoint either, right? I, he he said the same thing that he had a whole. Um, and John uh, John Calvin's commentary in Isaiah 14 said the exposition of this passage, talking about Isaiah 14, which some have given as if it referred to Satan has arisen from ignorance for the context plainly shows <laughs> these statements must be understood in the reference to the king of the Babylonians, which once again, that's debatable. But but the passages of scripture are taken up at random and no attention is paid to the context. We need not wonder what mistakes of this kind frequently arise. Yet it was an instance of very gross ignorance to imagine Lucifer was the king of devils and the prophet gave him the name. But these inventions have no probability whatever. Let us pass them as useless fables. I mean, that's that's John Calvin. And then also, um, and I thought that was it was kind of interesting, Martin Luther. And, you know, I was raised Lutheran and, and, you know, Lutherans, it's very synonymous, the Satan to Lucifer connection. But when Lucifer, um, I'm sorry, when uh, Martin, not Lucifer, Luther uh, brought this up, I, I was reading this. It was from a commentary um, by Franz Delzich. And it said that uh, a quote from Lucifer, I'm, I said it again, Luther, it said, <laughs> in signus error totius papatus, which meant a noteworthy error of the papacy when referring to that connection. And I thought that was rather amazing. When you have even, you know, people like Martin Luther, you know, growing up as a Lutheran, Martin Luther's on a, a little bit of a pedestal, Right. You have him sure. there, the 95 theses and all these different things. But yet we still stick to the tradition that we're given when we look back at the at the, um, you know, the, the from origin and Tertullian and, and Jerome. We, we, we stick to these traditions. And I think that people like you make it, it such a you make such a, a important point that 
we need to dig into this stuff for ourselves because what we're doing is we're looking at what man has told us. We're not looking at what God's told us because we're jumping over certain things. We're making connections that other people have told us. We need to make sure that we're digging into this word ourselves because the truth is there. And, and, but majority of Christians as a whole are very comfortable sitting back and listening to somebody else tell us, this is what you should believe. And we sit back and we just say, Oh yep, Then Lucifer, Satan, we're good with that. Well, it's like that meme I posted, you know, it showed Chris Farley, you know, holding his beer up and making a face and it shows the family sitting in front of the TV. I saw it on TV. My research is done. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's about it. And, and, um, I, I don't think, I think many people have the mistaken idea that you need to be a scholar to um, really dig in this deep and find these things. And, and that's really just not the case. Um, I've been blessed that, you know, my mother was a, a school teacher in her younger days. So she taught my sister and me to read very early. You know, I was reading before I started kindergarten and had a love of learning for a long time, which continues to this day. So that, that is, uh, you know, a true blessing. Not everybody has that uh, that desire, that gift, just like, you know, when it comes to doing anything that involves uh, anything, making anything with my hands more complicated than pounding a nail or turning a screw, forget it. You know, I, I know where, you know, a man's got to know his limitations. I hire somebody who knows what he's doing. But this, the, the tools that we have available to us, so much of this information is available on the web. Most of what we get, uh, Sharon and I, for our research, is uh, through sites like academia.edu. There are other sites similar to that where scholars post their papers and uh, for a nominal fee uh, or even for free in many cases, you can download a lot of these things. The Bible study tools at uh, places like um, uh, Blue Letter Bible or Bible Hub um, or others uh, are, are just, I mean, you know, just imagine what somebody like Spurgeon could have done with all of these electronic tools at his disposal. we don't have an excuse to not dig in. We've also got the benefit of modern archaeology that has found many texts that were not available to the, uh, the scholars of centuries gone by. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Ugaritic texts, texts from places like uh, uh, Ebla and Mari and, uh, and uh, Babylon and uh, you know, uh, Nuzi and, and other places in the ancient Near East that help us to understand the world of the Bible more fully. And um, it, when you start putting all these pieces together, the picture is so much more, so much richer than what most of us have been taught. I mean, again, it's not just the devil and some little cartoon demons running around with pitchforks. It's a pantheon, a pagan pantheon that has set itself up as a rogue government here on earth temporarily. God Jesus called him, Satan that is, the prince of this world or the god of this world, but his dominion is temporary. God, Jesus, will come back and reclaim it. And this war that is going on around us, when you look at this and understand that these creatures that God himself in scripture refers to as gods and giants and dragons are real, like we're in the middle of a Tolkien-esque war, except it's It's really happening, and we're in the middle of it. And I think if we teach our kids this stuff and that that these things are real and that Jesus took it really seriously, I think they'll get a lot more excited about the Bible. Again, the reason we're going to Israel early 
is to see some of the places that uh, we, we've talked before about on this program. Uh, Jesus being baptized, not at Bethany across the Jordan, like John 128, but at Bashan across the Jordan. Why did he do that? Why did he go there? Well, look at all these megalithic sites, these, these monuments to the dead, these dolmens, Gilgal Rephaim. There's a similar site. It looks like Gilgal Rephaim, but about one third the size. That's half a mile from Bethsaida, where Jesus called his first disciples, Philip, Nathaniel, Andrew, Peter. Hey, come with me. Half a mile away is this this thing, concentric rings around a central tomb with a dolmen in the middle. You think they didn't know it was there? And that's where John was baptizing. It's like, and when he moved to Capernaum, which is in that region, Matthew says it was fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. The people dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned. Like the valley of the shadow of death is for real? Well, yeah. And that's where Jesus got baptized. And then he goes to Mount Hermon and says, oh, yeah, on this rock, this 9,200-foot mountain here is where I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell, this really big cave over here, will not prevail against it. Why did he do that if it wasn't important? Why haven't we been taught that this stuff was important? That's what gets me fired up. And that's, like I said, that's why we want to go early so we can shoot some video and hopefully convey this sense of excitement that we have about learning these things. I love that video you done a few years back when you stand there, man. You you were fired up. You, you were in preacher mode. <laughs> you know, you you said, you know, who do you say that I am? You know, he said, you know, this was a. I think you referred to it as a a, a flare, a flare gun fired off into the the spirit realm. The spirit you know, realm Jesus yeah. standing there saying, "Come and get some." Yeah, <laughs> loved it. It was it was a blessing to be able to do that because we had a group of about a hundred people with us. And uh, you could just hear when you say, on this rock, I will build my church. And the people are standing there and just look up at the mountain. like, And it begins to dawn that Jesus took his disciples there specifically to make that point. I mean, it's not like they hopped in the car, drove for half an hour and went there spur of the moment. It's 30 miles away from his home base at Capernaum. That's like a two, maybe three day walk. You know, that's you're walking, you're wearing sandals, you're climbing these hills and mountains, you're going through the Hula Valley, which at the time was a marsh, swampy, mosquitoes. You know, it's not something you do spur of the moment just to. And he went there specifically when you when you track the, the career of Jesus and the movements during his ministry. He had been over in uh, what is now Lebanon, where he healed the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. And then he went back to the Sea of Galilee where he fed, you know, the 4,000 plus their families. Uh, and then he went back to Caesarea Philippi. Now that road from Tyre runs right past Dan and Caesarea Philippi before cutting south toward the Sea of Galilee. He could have just said, hey, look, fellas, while we're in the neighborhood, let's, let's go over here. He didn't. He took him 60 miles, you know, down to the Sea of Galilee and then back again to make a specific point at that specific place. And that mountain, El, you know, his Mount of Assembly, which was the mountain of the Transfiguration, it's the only very high mountain in the vicinity, in the vicinity of Caesarea Philippi. In fact, Matthew only mentions a very high mountain twice in his gospel. The other time is when um, Satan takes him up the high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. I think it's the same mountain, too. Yeah, and, and, and it says he, he took his 70 disciples. He sent out his 70 so basically, he, he was saying, I put my 70 against your 70, and I'm going to reclaim my exactly. nations. 
exactly right. Exactly right. So Jesus took all of this very seriously. And then as he went back to uh, Jerusalem, he spent, well, <laughs> this, this blew me away. He spends the last week of his life dividing his time between Temple Mount. Obviously, it's his father's house and the Mount of Olives. Why the Mount of Olives? Go back a thousand years, 900 years to the time of Solomon. Solomon built a high place there for Milcom. Milcom was the Ammonite form of the name Molech. Turns out that Milcom is just a name that means king. The actual chief god of the Ammonites was El, the creator god of the Canaanites. So El, Enlil, Molech, one and the same. Solomon builds a high place for Molech on the summit of the Mount of Olives. Now, why is that relevant? Because it's 200 feet higher than the Temple Mount. And it's east of the Temple Mount, meaning whenever they opened the doors of the temple, the priests would look out and look up and see this temple to Molech looking down on the temple of God. And so because of this, according to 2 Kings 23, 13, the priests began calling it the Mount of Corruption. But again, we got that Hebrew definite article, ha, meaning the in there. It's har ha mashki, Mount of the Corruption. That doesn't make sense. English translators trying to understand it, try to make sense. They drop the word the out of the, uh, the name. But when you look elsewhere in scripture, and again, this is where the electronic toys come in handy. I'm glad I didn't live in the days of Spurgeon. It would drive me nuts. Um, Exodus 12, 23, the word hot mashkeith and in Jeremiah 51, hot mashkeith means destroyer, the destroyer. It's the mount of the destroyer. Who's the Exactly. The destroyer in Revelation 9, Abaddon or Apollyon. And again, I argue that that entity, the destroyer, is Shemiyaza from the book of First Enoch, the leader of the rebellion in Genesis 6. So in other words, this entity, Lucifer, actually refers to this entity who rebelled in Genesis 6, who gets out of the bottomless pit in Revelation 9, and in between has been convincing humanity for thousands of years to sacrifice our children to him. This is what is uh, going on in scripture. And I think this is why perhaps he is in the bottomless pit right now in chains, because if he'd been allowed to roam free during these long millennia, well, for whatever his reasons, God knew what would have happened and he saw that it was necessary to put a stop to it. Well, I'll tell you, Derek, I, you are uh, just a phenomenal example of why we need to really, truly dig into the Bible, read everything, because nothing's in there by accident. So when we that's put right. these different locations, these different points, and that's the other part is the um, the geography and, and the locations, all this stuff, it, it means something. And it's so important to look into that because it, it makes a difference in how you interpret these things and how you look at them on top of the fact, like we said before, that you have to look at it through their eyes when you're looking at the, the religions and the powers of that time and that who was, you know, the the rival kingdom, who was their, you know, quote unquote God at that time. All these things play a role in in interpreting and deciphering the Bible, and it's it's up to us. And what was that? That's that verse always that we we said at the beginning of the show, right? Is the um, it's the it's the and the glory of kings to uh, to uh, search things out exactly. And I just love that, and I think that you are such a good example of that. And I think that um, 
just listening to you and listening to to one of these shows where you really dive into one of these topics should be such motivation for everybody to do the same on their own. And I think that's that's really, you know, the focus of this show is to get people to start doing that on their own, really dig in, really take it to the next level. Because, you know, when you read your Bible, God's speaking to you. And and when you listen to what God has to say, he's going to tell you something that that you need to hear. He tells me something different than he tells uh, Justin, than he tells Ben, than he tells you, Derek. He tells us something different, and we all need to listen. He's going to teach us through that, and it's just so important because nothing's in there by accident. Well, see, Amen. You, you totally Amen. showed me something today. I mean, I ain't going to lie. I reread. I didn't reread the entire book, but that David Lowe book, I, every book I read, I always highlight and make notes in and stuff like that. So I flipped through and wrote down my highlights and stuff like that, and I actually had something I was wanting to pitch at you, and... Uh, you threw a little bit of a monkey wrench in it, but I'm glad you did. You taught me something, but I'm still going to ask you anyway. And then maybe, uh, with your interpretation to it, enlighten me some more. But when I was reading that book, it talked about, you know, the Septuagint rendering that word as a uh, hero, 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 folks. I'm sorry. Correct me, but I think, you know, yeah, hero foros. But, and then, but it said that, uh, it's a shining stellar, uh, stellar body, you know, a shining one, uh, and then Halil. But, you know, it said that, that basically that the Greeks seen this, st- this star, this planet, you know, Venus, not as one, but as two. So the, when the star shone itself before the sunrise, it was uh, a whole different star, a whole different planet. Then when it showed itself, you know, uh, at the beginning of the night, it was it was totally different. So it was like, in the Greeks, it was, uh, let me see here, the morning star was e- Eophoros, and then uh, Phosphoros. So it was like talking about, there was basically a distinction between the two. The evening was the Hesporos, and then the morning was the Phosphoros. And so and with, that actually makes sense. That makes sense because the uh, Canaanites had uh, two different aspects of uh, Venus. In the evening, it was Astarte, who was their version of Inanna or Ishtar. But in the morning, it was the uh, the war god Athtar. So male in the morning, female at night. And so what you threw a wrench in to my little thing was, I was thinking, you know, well, this, you know, was representing a a. a of saint of satan even though it's not the personal name it's still you know kind of referring to him and his fall and then i got to thinking well later in revelations jesus himself calls himself the hesphoros you know the the morning star he's the true morning star so and we you know we know that satan tries to imitate you know he wants to be like but he can't so i was this might be a very poor example, but it's the best one I can come up with. Uh, like the yin and the yang. So were they seeing this one planet as two? Is this, you know, kind of like a, an imitation? He can't be the morning star, so therefore he put up this deception. He's like the morning star. But, and, but then I also thought about Zechariah 3. You know, Satan was at the right hand of the father accusing uh, Joshua, the high priest. Right. Well, in, in Revelation, when it talks about, you know, when Satan is thrown down, it specifically says 
because there was no place for him because Jesus took his place at the right hand. So it was kind of like I was thinking in my head was was Satan like technically the the high priest because Jesus is now the eternal high priest and it says he took his spot because there's no longer a place for him. But now you've kind of got me thinking, well, it, it's not Satan. So I guess with this new light, it's like it was uh, this entity that is now in everlasting chains once the high priest. Well, and he may have been the high priest in, uh, in heaven. That may be why his, uh, through his pride, he thought he could take this creation earth that God had um, uh, given to the descendants of Adam and Eve, you know, told them to go, go forth, be fruitful and multiply, take dominion of the earth. Um, according to uh, Ezekiel 28, 13, you know, every precious stone was your covering. And when you read in the Septuagint, the stones, there, there are more stones that there are 12 exactly in the Septuagint. They're missing a couple in the uh, Masoretic text, which is what our, our English Old Testaments are based on. But um, they match the stones in the ephod worn by the high priest as it was described by God when he gave the instructions to Moses. So was Shemiyaza, Abaddon, Apollyon, was he the high priest in Eden? Could be. And again, was he a cherub? Well, possibly, if he's different from the, uh, the being in the garden in Genesis 3, which is a Nakash, not a cherub, he could have been the anointed guardian cherub. Or if we take the Septuagint version, he was placed there with the anointed guardian cherub who had to throw him out because he uh, rebelled. Um, either way, I think we're looking at an entity here that's different from Satan because, again, the Jews never connected, and we never see anything in the Old Testament connecting Satan or the Satan to the netherworld, to Sheol, to the Rephaim, whereas this entity, Shemiyaza, is connected to the Rephaim, he and his buddies are their parents. And because of that, according to Peter and Jude, and also what we see in uh, the extra biblical texts like First Enoch, they were punished and, be, and basically chained up in the netherworld for that sin. So um, I think, and again, this is not a theological hill I'll die on, but uh, yeah, it, I think the evidence fits the theory, and it just again, reinforces the idea that this war we're in the middle of is a lot more um, convoluted, complicated, and more intense than we've been taught. Well, in your opinion, why was all the, the sin ascribed to Azazel? So is he like, the, like the, the, the two beasts it talks about in Revelation? One's actually in charge, and the other one's just the mouthpiece. Was, was Azazel the mouthpiece, so to say? Well, it's almost like there are two narratives in uh, the book of First Enoch, and uh, this is not an area where I'm an expert, but at least this is my understanding, that you've got the story of Shemiyaza, who was the chief of the Watchers, the one who led the rebellion. But then you've got the story, the narrative connected to Azazel, or Azael, who was responsible for teaching forbidden knowledge. So all of that stuff was ascribed to Azazel. He taught us uh, incantations and root cutting and charms and and uh, witchcraft and sorcery and uh, using uh, uh, makeup and you know for for uh, alluring and, and, and adornment and, and entrapping others uh, the, the art of weapon making weapons and things like that forbidden knowledge things we weren't supposed to know 
uh, almost like Prometheus in the Greek myth. You know, Prometheus who stole fire from Olympus and gave it to humanity and was punished by being sent to Tartarus for it. That's kind of what Azazel did. It's a very similar story. Um, in, in a way, it's also similar to the uh, uh, account of the, uh, the Apkalu in Mesopotamia, who were believed, to, there, there were, it's believed that there were seven, and this is a, a pattern we see a lot in the ancient world. There are seven sages in many different cultures, or seven supernatural wise men who bring the gifts of civilization to humanity. Um, these seven Apkalu, according to a Mesopotamian text called the Epic of Era, E-R-R-A, who was a, a war god who uh, kind of goes insane and starts laying waste to everything. Um, in that, that text, the chief god or king of the gods, Marduk, who's taken over the top spot of the pantheon from Enlil, Marduk says he grew angry with the Apkalu, the craftsmen, and he sent them to the Absu, the abyss, and told them never to return. So again, we get these these similarities in the stories which i don't think are coincidental i think that the uh, the the myths and religions of the pagans of the ancient world are just fake news versions of the history that's in the bible listen you have no no clue how much we appreciate you jumping out with us tonight derek and every time <laughs> i learn so much every time uh, we talk to you whether it's in person or whether it's on one of these uh, uh podcasts here well, but Thank you so much for coming on. Um, if you would like to give a little plug again uh, to, you know, where everybody can find your information, your books, um, where they can look uh, up anything about you, go ahead. No, happy to do it. You'll find all of our stuff at gilberthouse.org. Um, I do the daily news analysis for Skywatch TV, and people can find that at skywatchtv.com uh, or the Skywatch TV app. But uh, gilberthouse.org is where all the stuff that Sharon and I do, our weekly program, Unraveling Revelation, our weekly Bible study, uh, my weekly podcast, A View from the Bunker. Uh, Sharon and I have gone back and we started producing our podcast that started all of this back in 2005, PID Radio. All of that is on our free app, which is uh, at gilberthouse.org slash app. And um, so, yeah, that's that's sort of our, our global hub as we as we begin to roll out our plan of world domination. Highly recommend uh, the <laughs> app. That's where I, I listen to a lot of uh, a lot of your stuff, especially the iron and myth stuff. I absolutely adore that stuff's oh, awesome. Yes. Those all those guys, fun. you guys together are amazing. So yeah. we've just, had everybody but Brian. We need to get Brian. We on haven't had we'll Brian complete on the yet. table. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but thanks again. Get him on. He's a great interview. Well, oh no, I honored to do it. Happy to do it. And, uh, Look for you know anytime you guys want, just uh, give me a holler. Hey, we'll take you up on that now. You we'll bet, tell be, be sure and tell Miss Gilbert uh, thank you for instilling the love of reading because we are all direct beneficiaries. <laughs> beneficiaries. That, there you go. that will make her night. I will pass it on to her, Justin. I appreciate that. All right, we'll see you, Derek. Thank you. See you. Bye. God bless. Thank you guys for tuning in. And just as you heard from the man, we have no excuse. Keep digging. We thank you for listening to the Dig Bible Podcast. Questions, comments, or future episode ideas, we'd love to hear from you at thedig423 at gmail.com. If you enjoy our content, don't forget to share, subscribe, and check out our Facebook group at The Dig Podcast. Remember, you can't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. you got to dig.